Greetings, friends and family. It is the weekend of Sunday, May the 15th, and we continue this week with our look at the book of Job. This week, we look at chapter 2 of Job and the pressure that often comes with pain. Dr. Francis Schaeffer has said that the first argument of the gospel is not, as certainly I often think, that Jesus died for our sins, or is it, as sometimes we've we've told, that, that God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives? Dr. Schaefer says that the first argument of the gospel is God is there. There is a God, and he is in control of life. And this is one of the great lessons of the book of Job, which, of course, we're confronted with right from the very beginning. The presence of God and the life of humanity, even though we go through sometimes very severe trials. The trial itself proves the existence of God and his presence with us. And so as we see in the opening chapter of the book, Job is being subject or being subjected, excuse me, to a very severe test. And, and Satan has been permitted by God to take away all of Job's possessions in this attempt to prove that if man's things are taken away, if all the things that prop us up are taken away, that we will curse God to his face. But Job has survived that first cycle of tests, tests that took away all of his wealth, all of his possessions, even his children. And Job is left crushed and he's broken, but nevertheless, he is, he's full of faith. And when we reach the end of chapter one last week, we see that the score is one to nothing in favor of Job against Satan. And so chapter two opens with with another round in the test, and, and the first three verses tell us that God again initi initiates action against Job. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come? And, and, and Satan answered the Lord from going to and fro the earth and walking up and down it. And, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, blameless, upright, who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast to his integrity, although you moved me against him to destroy him without cause. So it reads very much like the first chapter where we have the that same glimpse sort of behind the scenes into the heavenlies uh, where God and Satan are holding this conversation about Job. Um, the viewpoint makes a very tremendous difference. Here in this chapter, we're given a viewpoint of Job and his suffering, one that Job himself is not permitted to have. We're given this because we too are not permitted this viewpoint in times of trial. In other words, we do not know what is going on behind the scenes in our lives with, with our pressures and trials. We do not know what has transpired between, between Satan and God about us, but we are given this reassurance that something does happen and that we are being subjected to a test. And this is a very revealing and, and, and very important. And the thing that I think is important here to see is that God initiates further testing of Job. Job, God challenges Satan and, and says, well, what do you think of Job now? You, you moved him, you moved me against him without a cause. I allowed it to happen. But now what do you think? There's none like him on the earth. He's blameless and upright. He turns away from evil. You haven't moved him an inch, Satan. What do you think now? 
And then Satan replies by asking for a change in the rules. So, and then picking up in verse four, then Satan answered the Lord, well, how, how about skin for skin? All that a man has, he will, he will give for his life, but, but put thy hand forth now, touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your power. Just spare his life. Don't kill him. So when Satan says skin for skin, he's, he's using basically the same argument that he used in the first chapter. His philosophy was, and still is, that humanity is basically self-centered, that we are self-centered creatures. And when, when you, you attack us directly, we will give way. We will give up our faith, our religion, anything to save ourselves, to save our stuff. Now that, that argument's been fully answered. God has allowed Satan to test Job, and though he lost his family and all of his wealth, Job remains strong in his integrity, refusing to charge God with any wrong. It's really a very sobering thing to realize that the tests that come into our life are aimed at getting us to curse God to his face, to, to tell him that he's wrong, that he does not keep his promises, that he's not the, the, he's not the kind of a God that we, we have been told that he is. And if, if we look back, if we take note of our own life, we will recognize that when we're under pressure, the thing we want more than anything else is, is to cry out and protest um, to God, that he's not keeping his promises. And that's where Satan always aims. He, he has the same philosophy and the same objective today. He wants us to curse God as he wanted Job to do the same. But Satan asks for a change in the rules because, in effect, he says to God, you, you didn't go far enough. You, you put a boundary around Job and, and said, I couldn't touch his body. Well, that's the problem. It's true that a, a man may give up his possessions, yet, but one thing that he will never give up is his own health. So you, so you let me get at, get at him. Let me destroy his health, and, and he will give up his integrity and his faith. Put, put out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to his face. And the Lord said to Satan, He's in your power. Just spare his life. Don't kill him. Once again, there's this divine limitation to the power of Satan. But this time God moves the boundaries closer. He says you can touch him. In fact, when Satan uses the phrase touch his bone and his flesh, he asks for access to the total humanity of Job. We we still, to some degree, use that phrase today, flesh and bone, speaking of our total humanity, not, not only our physical body, but our emotional life as well, our conscious, our subconscious, our thinking, the reacting, not only, and, and not only our soul, but our spirit. So Satan is asking for access to this man, Job, to touch him, body, soul, spirit. He, he proceeds in that order, and that constitutes the argument and basic assault record in the rest of the, the book of Job. Satan knows what he's after. He knows that if he can get at Job in every part of his being, he thinks that he can shake Job's faith and cause him to turn from his trust and his confidence in God and to rather than curse him. Um, there, there are people who, who will not accept the story of Job as a historical event. They, they can't believe that there was a man named Job who went through these things. There, their argument goes, well, if it's a true story, then, then God is unconcerned about human life. He's, he's not concerned with us. It pictures God is ruthless, and, and, and Job's whole family was taken from him. We can't accept this as a historical record. That's, that's people's argument. But that thinking, however, again, sees God as nothing more 
than than a man. It is making God in our image when we are made in his image. So who thinks and acts has no more rights than, than a man? That's that's what they think of God. And it was obvious that that they think that if a man took life like this, he would he would very justifiably be charged with murder and cruelty. It does not occur to them that God cannot be charged with these things because in his hand is all of life. He determines the length of life for everyone. Why, why should this happen? What's God doing? So that's why we have this, the book of Job, to show us that there are reasons and purposes in these trials and sufferings that we do not see. We do not have the advantage of seeing. Job could not see what was going on behind the scenes, and neither can we. But God knows, and God is working out an object. He has a purpose in it and for it, and it's a proper and right purpose that will end up manifesting more uh, the love and compassion of, of his heart. The test of every trial is always this to this end, to this objective. So, so Satan is given access to Job. And then in verses uh, 7 through 9, the next section, we see the, the physical test that comes. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he afflicted Job with loathsome, loathsome excuse me, sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he, and he took a, a potsherd, which with which to scrape himself, and he sat among the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? You should curse God and die. So here's the first attack on the body of Job. And, and some think it was leprosy. Other scholars think it was a form of, of elephantitis, which not only covered the body with running um, sores, but also caused the members to swell up and become bloated and distorted. Whatever it was, it left Job um, very pitiful. He was repulsive. He sort of became a hulk of a of a man, swollen. He was disfigured and hurting, incredibly painful with these these running sores. So here's Job, totally covered with these agonizing sores. He, he's not, not only physically afflicted, but he's also painfully humiliated. And so he ends up sitting in the ashes, scraping the pus from his sores with a broken piece of pottery. And then on top of all that, the, the one who he thought you know ought to have been able to turn to for emotional support, his spouse turned against him. And his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? And I can see that her faith has crumbled under this attack. She, she no longer believes that God is loving, thoughtful, and just. And she sees this as proof as to why he's not. And many of us have done, have done in times of trial um, that, that we have said or we have thought that God has forsake, you know, forgotten his promises, that the Bible's not true. How many times, um, you know, I've I've come to to comfort people and met with people going through trials, and 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 and, and sort of they, this thought eventually emerges. You know, I tried these promises, I tried believing God, but it, it didn't work. It's not working. You know, have we ever thought that? Have we ever said that? Um, that that's getting very close to what Satan was trying to get Job to say: curse God and die. He he used Job's wife as his instrument. The the assault on Job's emotional life comes to his wife. And, and she advises him to do two things, to give up your faith, so apostatize, curse God. Actually, in, in the Hebrew, the word is, is bless God, but, it, but it's properly translated as curse because the word bless is, is being very sarcastic. 
um, incredible sarcasm. Um, bless God and die. She, she is clearly suggesting suicide. It would be better for you to take your life than to go on like this. So here's poor Job, physical pain, humiliated with dis, a disfigured body, um, suffers from the sense of emotional abandonment by his spouse. And here, here was a severe attack addressed to the very soul of Job, where he feels his wife abandoning him, advocating that he turn from his faith and renounce God. But now in verse 10, we get the results of this second round, if you will, of test. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job 2.10 so, so in a way, Job's rebuke is, is really actually very gentle. He did not say, you foolish woman. He said, you speak as one of the foolish women. He's not attacking her. Rather, he's suggesting that this is a temporary lapse, lapse, lapse excuse me, of faith on her part. And that for the moment... She has begun to repeat the words of women who have no knowledge of the grace and glory of God. And in that gentle rebuke, I think we can see something of the sturdiness and the tenderness of Job's faith. In this great sentence, he again reasserts the sovereignty of God. Shall, shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? Job's wife had the philosophy that life ought to be pleasant, and if it was not then there's no use in living it. And that philosophy, to be frank, is widespread in, in, in the present moment, in our day. And, and all we need to do is look at this, the mounting rates of suicide that we see. But, but this book is given to show us that life is not to be lived on those terms. The reason that we are here is not necessarily to have a good time. There are meaningful objectives to be attained in life, even when it all turns sour, when the pressure comes, when living is no longer fun, life is still worth living. And Job reaffirms that. Shall we, shall we not take both good and evil from the hand of God? We take his joy and his pleasure, the pleasant things of life, with gladness and gratitude. If, if he chooses to send something that is difficult, shall we then abandon that gratitude and begin to curse him in protest because life is suddenly different than we thought it would be? The reason we are here is not merely that we might have a good time. And, and this is taught everywhere in the scriptures. God in his grace and his glory does give us many, many hours of joy and gladness and pleasure and delight. And it is right for us to stop, to pause and to give thanks. But we're not to abandon that when the time of pressure comes, because that is when is what Satan wants us to do. He wants us to begin to complain, to protest to God, to get upset and angry and resentful, to stop doing those things that we know we need to do. He wants us to, to curse God, to leave God. Um, again, one of the things that I love about Job is that he's very honest throughout this. Um, he, he doesn't sugarcoat anything, but he doesn't curse God. And that's, that's what Satan's whole attack in our lives is aimed at doing. So, so Job is one. The score is now two to, to nothing in the favor of Job. But Satan's not through. 
Remember that he obtained permission from God to assault this man in every area of his being. Not only has he taken Job's children and all his possessions, but he has also taken away his health and all the pleasure of his physical life. And Satan also has assaulted Job's soul and made him feel abandoned by his wife. So Satan now proceeds to assault the final stronghold of all, the spirit of Job, the ultimate reality of his life. So in the closing verses of this chapter, we see him beginning to move up sort of the heavy guns to assault Job's faith. And we notice that the big guns that he seeks to employ are kind of unusual in verse 11. Now, now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come on him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite. And they made an appointment together to come to talk with him and comfort him. Now we're set for the major argument of this book. And the major attack on the faith of Job comes not through his physical trials, but through an attack on his spiritual relationship with God himself. And it comes through the hands of very well-meaning friends. And that and that is the irony of this. Here are our misguided but very sincere friends who want to help. And the hope that they are helping. But actually they become an instrument of Satan to assault the, the, the bedrock of, of Job's faith. And almost cause it to collapse. And we'll learn more about these men as we go through the arguments that they, that they bring. And, and it's obvious that they had they'd come from distant places and, and had a good deal of time has elapsed while Job has been suffering physically. Word, word had come to his friends about Job's disaster. And they had... They had to agree together by sending messengers to one another to come together at an appointed time and visit Job. So weeks, if not months, have probably gone by while Job has is, is been in this severe pressure on his faith. And when his friends arrive, they are completely shocked at what they see, verses 12 and 13. And when they saw him from, from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him because they saw that his suffering was very great. You know, they can hardly believe their eyes. This monstrous, repulsive hulk of a man. Could, could, he, could he really be their dear old friend Job? Was this Job sitting huddled in a heap of ashes? scraping himself with a broken piece of pottery, swollen, disfigured, repulsive to look at. Could this be the man that they had known and loved? They're so shocked by this that their actions strongly suggest that they think Job is on his deathbed, that they, that he's dying. And they held basically, in effect, a funeral service for him. They did what was customarily done at funerals. They raised their voices, they mourned and wept, tore their coats, sprinkled dust on their heads, and they finally ended up sitting on the ground around Job, observing him in silence for seven days. And now they're sitting there. I'm sure they were thinking, and, and what they thought is, is going to come out in the arguments that, that they will give in the next section of the book. And, and we're going to sort of take these on a little quicker. Um, it's enough for us to see at this point that while they were waiting in silence around Job, they came to the conclusion that he was suffering under the hand of God for some terrible sin that he must have committed and that it was actually right for God to make him suffer this way. Their hearts then were, 
were hardening against Job. They had come to comfort him, but they are confronted with the feeling that many of us have had, that, that there's not much that they can say because in their hearts, they really believe that Job deserves what he's getting. So the silence probably means, or could mean certainly, that they were wondering how to say this, how to, how to begin, how to put it in terms that Job's going to listen to. This, this becomes an, one of maybe the earliest interventions, if you will, um, that, that humanity had ever exercised. And so in the next time we get together, in our next study, we'll hear Job's own cry of protest against God, um, a difference between cursing God and protesting. There's a difference, you know, again, Job is very, he is, uh, he is very honest throughout the book. And we'll begin to read what these friends have to say as they try to explain to Job what he is going through. And, and we'll find that much of, of our philosophy will be reflected in what they say. But we can't ever forget that we've been shown at the beginning of this book, it is God who is doing this ultimately. And he has an aim in view. He has a reason. And because he does not tell us this point, what it is, well, we too have to suffer through this with Job. We must feel to some degree with him what he's feeling. And since the protest, the anguish, the emptiness of his life, never, nevertheless, we must remember that there is an answer. God does have an answer, and it will be made clear as the book unfolds. And I don't know whether this catches us where Job is or not, but, but sooner or later, we all are going to come to these kinds and types of trials and testing, because in some degree, God does visit them on us. And, and if we're going through such a time now, I, th- I think this book will be great help. But if we're not, then we can be thankful that God has given us this book and be thankful that he has chosen to maintain, maintain that protection, his love and care over us. Because we've seen that if Satan had his way, um, if, if, if Satan could, would be allowed to have his way, then we would all die. But God has guarded us and kept us. He, if he temporarily lifts his hand, will we have assurances everywhere in the word of God that it will never be more than we can handle? And Job proved that. It was never more than he could stand, although he thought it was. And sometimes this is the way we feel. We think God is going too far, that he's pushing us too hard. But he doesn't. He's teaching us our limits. And this is what the book of Job will do for us as we go through it. Amen. And God bless.